Gospel Church of Beaufort on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first time listener for the next hour, we take people's questions. Uh, you can either email them directly here into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net, or you can call us locally. The number is eight, four, three, five, two, five, eighteen fifty nine. For those who listen through the internet, if you want to use our toll-free number, you can, and that number is an 877 number. The call letters WAGP 980. Uh, when you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and we've got a number of questions, so let's get to them. One uh, is a little bit lengthy, so let me uh, try and work through it. Uh, Kim from Seabrook writes, I've been a submissive wife in many ways for many years, stepped out in faith, followed my husband where he leads the family as the spiritual head. Even when I didn't want to, I've prayed and God has been faithful and good as he always is, blessed me in many ways. I know it's not my job to preach or to try. Well, let's get to that question in just a second, but we do have a live caller. We always give live callers preference. So uh, we'll get back to that in just a second. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling. How can we be of help today? Um, just had a question. I need some help understanding um, Zechariah chapter 11. Okay. Verses 7 and 8. Um, right. We're talking about the two different staffs and then the three shepherds that he annihilated. I really don't understand those two passages. If he could help me out. I'll, yeah. I'll hang up. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me Let me set the context here for a little bit. Zechariah 11, when you come to the 11th chapter, God is looking down the corridors of time. Let me uh, pick it up in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, blessed be the Lord, for I've become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I shall no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I shall cause the men to fall each into another's power and into, an, and into the power of his king. They will strike the land and I shall not deliver them from their power. So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, the one I called favor. And if you have the um, new American standard, and it is helpful sometimes to uh, have a Bible that has some uh, marginal footnotes because sometimes it can give you, if you don't read the original language, uh, the nuances of the Greek. And so you could translate it pleasantness. One I call favor or pleasantness and the other I call union or literally cords. And so I pastured the flock. 
Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month for my soul was impatient with them and their soul also was weary of me. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to, uh, what is to die? Let it die. And what is to be annihilated? Let it be annihilated and let those who are left eat one another's flesh. And I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the peoples. So, so it was broken on that day and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. And if you read the um, word Lord here, uh, different translations do it differently, but you will see it's not capital L small letters O-R-D, but it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, which uh, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. There's different names for God in the Bible. Uh, Elohim in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. There's the word Adonai that is usually uh, rendered capital L, small letters, O-R-D. And then there's the most sacred covenant name of God, which is important when you interpret this text, uh, Yahweh. And I said to them, it is good in your sight. Give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver. So understand the time frame in which this man is in ministry. He is in a time when Israel is in rebellion in unbelief. And because of that, God is uh, speaking in the 11th through the 14th chapters, what is going to happen in the immediate realm and what is going to take place in the long term. And so as a, as a shepherd, as a pastor, he's picturing how God is going to discipline his people. So the, there's two aspects to the covenant that God made with Israel. One is unconditional in nature. Second Samuel seven would be a good example. God makes an eternal covenant with David and his offspring such that Messiah will sit on his throne. But there's some conditional aspects to the covenant. And you can read Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And that's really important when you interpret this text of scripture, because there are some aspects of the covenant that are contingent on the obedience of Israel. So Moses says in Torah, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, well, I'm going to discipline you. And so some unfortunately have taken the uh, parable of the two staffs. And it is a parable of sorts, and they have used it to say that God's done with national Israel. He has now replaced his commitment with the church, who is the new Israel. But this is one of the conditional passages of the Old Testament, where God is going to basically deal with his people because of their unwillingness to repent. In fact, uh, 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 this section of scripture perfectly dovetails with Psalm 80 where you find uh, Israel is planted as a nation, Israel is prospered as a nation, Israel is punished as a nation, and then ultimately Israel is restored as a nation. So God plants the people of Israel, he blesses them, they prosper like few peoples in the history of the world, but because they've turned away from him, and that's what Zechariah, that's the day, that's the climate that he's ministering in, um, God is going to deal with them not in a, um, uh, a favorable way, but an unfavorable way. So it's tongue in cheek here when he uses the term favor. Uh, oh, you want favor? Let me show you what my favor is going to look like. And it's, uh, it's a very um, stern discipline because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You know, if you really love your kids and they do what's wrong, 
you discipline them. You, you don't, sometimes as a parent, you want to give a blessing to your child, but you can't for the simple reason that they are in rebellion. And that's really what's taking place here. But the good news is that God has not forsaken Israel. So as you read chapters 12, 13, and 14, you discover very uh, pointedly that God is going to bring them back, that they are going to believe on the Lord uh, in whom they pierced. And they will recognize that he is Messiah. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced right here in the next chapter. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And then in the 14th chapter, the promise of this coming kingdom is going to be realized when uh, behold, a day is coming for Yahweh, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. So here you see God doing just the opposite, as unlike in the parable of the two staffs. Now God is coming to deliver Israel. And in that day, his Messiah's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Um, It is interesting that I really believe this time is getting close because God speaks by the prophet hundreds of years before Jesus even comes to Bethlehem of a divided Jerusalem. And of course, there are people, including our own president, who wants to divide the city of Jerusalem and make it a dual capital. Well, the prophet Zechariah speaks that that will happen at the end of time. And then the Lord will come forth and fight against those nations. And in that day, his feet will uh, stand on the Mount of Olives. So it's an amazing section of scripture. And uh, it, it really is an expression of God's eternal love, whether it's expressed in his discipline or whether it's expressed in his restoration of the people of Israel. Good question. Let's uh, let's go to the next one. I think we had one from Seabrook, South Carolina. Let's pick that up. We did. We did. It's a woman who is uh, trying to be a good submissive wife. She's done everything that she knows to do uh, for many years now, um, allowing her husband to be spiritual head of the family, even when she didn't want him to be. Uh, she has prayed, and God has been faithful and um, good. He's always is, and blessed her in so many ways. She knows it's not her job to preach or to teach her husband, even though she's studying God's Word and spending time with him daily and has grown leaps and bounds in her faith journey. Um, she loves God and God and wants uh, you know her loved ones, especially those closest to her, to love him and know him and obey his Word as she tries to do. Uh, clear divisions in the Christian world seem so prevalent these days, she writes, and there are so many who claim to be Christians who don't seem to know the truth, and those who do know the truth seem very hateful. She wants to know, what can I do as I strive to be a godly wife to influence my husband? I pray, I try to talk to him about the clear differences in our beliefs, and there seems to be nothing I can say. In his opinion, the Bible was written and edited by men who had their own agendas set forth, and the times have changed. For example, the issues of women preachers and gay marriage are two hot topics we disagree on. We rarely attend church as a family these days. I don't feel pressured to take my kids to his chosen church since I know the denominational beliefs conflict with my own. I am blessed with godly grandparents on both sides that help me teach and take my children to Bible-believing and preaching churches. My kids are also being taught daily at their school about Jesus and his love. I'm thankful, sir, many things, 
My question is, what should I do? I desire to be involved in a church family, truly uh, Bible-centered, and that's clearly not my husband's desire. He discounts the Bible as the authority of God because, as I mentioned earlier, believes men to be responsible for much of the content. I also think he can't accept the Lord's justified and righteous discipline of his highest creation and greatest love, humanity. He doesn't have the faith to acknowledge that we don't have the all the answers, i.e., why should a loving God let bad things happen? I see the influence of my children's faith on him and am thankful any scripture references would be helpful. Well, this is a great question that you're asking this morning. In fact, uh, we offer a course at Community Bible Church it's called the Discovery Class, and it's a 45-week course that is structured so you can start any week you want. If Dr. Billy Graham is correct, about 20 years ago, he said that in his judgment, 90 to 95 percent of the genuine Christians in America have stayed baby Christians. And I honestly don't think that has changed much. Approximately 60 percent of the people who join Community Bible Church, some years it's a little bit higher, come by conversion. So... Somewhere around 30% or so of the, of the people who come to join our church are already Christians. And what I've discovered over and over and over again is that many of these people, some who've been Christians for decades, it's obvious that they've stayed baby Christians for decades and they've never really grown. So you're actually, the reason I raise this is not because I'm saying you're a baby Christian, but I raise this to say that um, some of the questions that you are asking, we cover in depth in the discovery class. For instance, one of the uh, issues that your husband has to ask and answer for himself is, is the Bible the word of God? He obviously says no. He says, well, it's written by sinful men. Times have changes. Morality has changed. Well, morality has indeed changed, but the moral law of God has not changed. And so the changes that we are seeing exhibited before us are actually signs of a nation and really a world that is running from God. Uh, we were this past Sunday addressing the issue of, uh, it's called God in the LGBT movement. It's on YouTube. Uh, if you're interested in watching that, or you can uh, go to search the scriptures, but it might be for Christians who want to share it to copy, paste the YouTube link and encourage fellow Christians to watch it because what I'm seeing more and more, and this is why I felt such an earnest desire to preach this sermon from the Lord is that a lot of Christians can't answer what God says about the whole LGBT movement. And of course I addressed that this past Sunday, but God is very clear that at the end of time, um, the nations of the world will turn against God. And ultimately, as I just read from the prophet Zechariah, they will turn against Israel. So they'll turn from God and they'll turn against the nation of Israel. And of course, uh, Jesus reminded us that the coming of the son of man will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And the days of Noah, if you've read Genesis six through nine, were days of moral permissiveness and the days of uh, Lot were days of moral perversion. And so we see a lot of evil in the world today, but a lot of the evil that we see in the world today is God giving a nation over to its evil desires. And so three times over in Romans one, it says God gave them over. And of course the reason is because they refuse to acknowledge God and, and give him thanks, honor him or give him thanks. 
And so they became futile or, or useless in their speculations and their view of life and their foolish heart becomes darkened. They, they think they're wise. They think they're cutting edge, but God says they've become fools and they're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And so God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So God gave us over when we really in, a, in many ways in an official capacity in the 1960s said, we don't want God. We don't want him in our schools. Uh, we made Bible reading illegal. We made prayer illegal. Another major Supreme Court decision is the Ten Commandments could not be posted in, in the public classrooms of America where they had been for decades and decades. Even a child could not pray out loud over his lunch in school. Those were all Supreme Court decisions. So God gave us over to sexual impurity. And you see during the 70s and 80s and 90s, just a growing immorality in our nation. But did we repent? No. And so for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, not just passions, but degrading passions, where the women exchanged the natural function, as did the men. And and you have lesbianism and homosexuality. And again, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved. Adimakos is the Greek word. You could render it an upside down mind. And that's where we are today. And so what we have to look for are the 21 vices that follow. And these are just going to grow in our culture unless our culture repents. God gave them over to depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. So they become evangelists for sin. And so your husband sees the evil in the world. Well, the, much of the evil in the world is because God is letting the world go their own way. Uh, we are doing a series on Wednesday nights on the Holy Spirit. And right now we just began a brand new section on the role of the Holy Spirit in different time frames. And so... Uh, We'll be examining his work in the Old Testament during the time that Christ was alive on the earth, post-Pentecost, but also a future time called the Great Tribulation. But as we approach the Great Tribulation, uh, God's hand is going to be loosed on the societies of the world. And the Spirit of God restrains sin in the world, but he's going to let his hand go, and the fullest release will happen during the Great Tribulation. And that's why there's growing evil. We can't blame God for it. God is just letting man have his own desires because of his rejection of God. Um, So that's an important question. We address that in the discovery class as the question, how to prove the Bible is true. And if you go to Amazon, you can type in my name and that title, how to prove the Bible is true. And there's a short little booklet I wrote. I don't make any money on it. I'm not here to sell books. I don't make a penny on it. Um, but if you purchase that book, uh, it will really give you five proofs for the divine authority of Scripture. And if your husband, unless he's just intellectually dishonest, unless he doesn't want to be confused with facts, unless he wants to put his brain up on a shelf, I can tell you he won't be able to argue against those five irrefutable proofs that I outline in that booklet showing the authority of Scripture. And that's the ultimate question he has to ask and answer. 
How do we know the Bible is the word of God? But your husband's rebelling against that. And I can tell you why. Because there's a moral issue that's going in his life. I don't know what it is. It might be alcohol. It might be drugs. It might be deceit. It might be stealing. It might be pornography. But there's some kind of moral issue that's uh, really ruling his heart. And so he is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. He is kicking against what he knows to be true. Look, even if no one has ever read a book like How to Prove the Bible is True, they are going to know it is true because the Bible is alive. It's different from any other word. It's, it's alive. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit. It has an impact. So you're wise as a mother to protect your ki- children, to guard them. Um, and to, in this case, be unsubmissive to your husband because there are times when we must obey God rather than men. Now, you do that respectfully. But to say to your husband, look, husband, I love you and I care about you and I'm going to honor you and show you respect, especially in front of the children. But I'm not going to go to some apostate denomination that denies the truth of the word of God, because then you would be asking me to disobey God. Come out and be separate from them, says the Lord of hosts. God says we're not to forsake the assembling of the brethren. He didn't say forsake the assembling of going to church but of the brethren. In other words, there are some churches that don't have brethren. Uh, There are a congregation of lost people. And so it's important that we are in a congregation of born again, twice born people. That's what God calls us to as a believer. So it's a wonderful question. I I, I feel your pain, um, but I commend you too, that you are availing yourself to hopefully a Bible-believing church, you should formally do that. You should encourage your children as they grow to formally do that. And thank God, too, that you have grandparents who want to build into the lives of those children and to have some other male models who can illustrate and live out truth. All right, very good. We've got a live caller standing by on this edition of the Bible Line. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to. I feel that humanity has really no intrinsic good without Christ, okay? So, because the Bible tells me without him I can do nothing. So, is the love, is it a fair statement to say that the love that Christ has for us is because that we are a gift from his Father? And anything that the Father gives him, he would cherish and love. So that is where the love of Christ to us comes from. Is that a fair statement? Well, I I missed the first part of your premise because there's a crackling that was going through your phone. Um, But let me just paraphrase what I've heard so far. Uh, You're basically saying that... um, the love that Christ has for us as believers comes from the Father? Is that what you're asking? or? Well, because that we are, that we are a gift from the Father to the Son, so that's where the love comes from, because we're obviously not lovable apart from Christ, because we can do nothing without him. Okay, so, well, yeah, yeah, I think, I think I'm following you. So l- let me just say first that um, there is a love and an affection that God has for all people because all people are made in the image of God. 
And though the fall has uh, damaged how that image should express itself, nonetheless, even fallen man is made in the image and likeness of God. And God made man really to have a fe- uh, to have a relationship with Him. Uh, the Bible teaches the solidarity of the human race. The book of Hebrews would be a great book to study. I cover that in depth in our series on Hebrews, uh, and even passages like Romans five. So Adam is really the representative head of the human race, and so that what Adam did, we've done. When Adam sinned, Romans five twelve says, "All have sinned." And so it's also equally true that Adam is the representative head in the kind of spirit that God has towards humanity. He made Adam not because he needed anything, but to give man an opportunity uh, to fellowship with the Lord, to be able to walk with God, to love God, to enjoy God's presence and to glorify him. And of course, we've rejected that. But even in our rejection of that, God's uh, favor has not been eradicated towards the masses of humanity. doesn't matter where people are on the planet, whatever religion, true or false, they may be in. God still cares and loves for people. He loves people. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God has a heart for people to repent. Why? Because he wants them to be forgiven. Why? Because he loves them. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, it's not a qualified uh, expression when we use the word world. Now, um, I was listening to a speaker yesterday on our radio station, and uh, maybe most people didn't pick it up, but it was very clear that he was a limited redemptionist, that he didn't believe that God loves all people, but only those who would believe and those who would repent. In either case, I don't think so. I, I think uh, I think that's wrong. I think the scripture is clear when it says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so all men doesn't just mean all kinds of people, you know, kings and presidents and non-kings and no, but all people. He said what he meant. He meant what he said. But this idea of God having an affection only for those who are saved um, and no affection for those who are lost, I think is a miscalculated perception or in fairness to that position, they would say God has a love for those who are unsaved because he knows who the elect will be and cares only for those unsaved people who will believe. Now, again, I I think you have to really manipulate the scripture to come to that conclusion. And it's not the plain, simple reading of scripture. And you go to most parts of the world where they haven't been influenced by some of that theology. And there's a purity in many respects to their teaching because they haven't read a lot of these things. and, And it seems to them that God loves everyone and he does. But with that said, God definitely has a special affection for those who are his. And so even the writer to the Hebrews in the uh, fifth chapter, uh, really in, in, in a couple of different chapters, in fact, let, let me read it, not from that chapter, but I want to read it from the uh, 12th chapter where it says there, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with us as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So it is true that um, because we are in Christ, as I think you are expressing, that God has a special affection for those who are his. Uh, you know, I, I love children, but I never disciplined my next door neighbor's children when they were growing up. I only disciplined my own. Why? Because I have a special affinity with my own children as they were growing up in my home. And so our Heavenly Father, he has a special affection for those who are born again, for those who are in Christ, uh, because they have become members of the body of Christ uh, through the forgiveness that was provided in the spirit who indwells them. And so we are called in scripture with uh, the noun. Uh, we are the beloved. Uh, we are called with an adjective. We are beloved uh, of God and a verb. And of course, uh, that presupposes that term all by itself, that God has a different affection for those who have known and met Jesus Christ. We are his beloved. And so um, because of a new identity that we have in Jesus Christ, God deals with us differently. Um, So anyway, I hope that helps. Um, Let's go to the next question and we'll keep moving on because a lot have come in. Indeed, 843-525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7. It's been so long since I've said that. W-A-G-P-9-8. There you go, 924-7980. And if you'd like to email it, you can do so at tbl at wagp.net. Alexis from Panama City Beach, Florida, writes about Ezra 2, verse 2. She'd like to know, is the Mordecai listed in that verse the same Mordecai from Esther? It appears that Esther and Ezra are in the same century, so I think they are. Can you clarify for me? Well, it's a good question. Um, I've just turned to the book of Ezra. It says, now, these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Zariah, uh, Reliah, Mordecai, and so forth. So here's a, here's a little bit of uh, a challenge. As you read the book of Ezra, it really divides into uh, two parts. You have Ezra 1 through 6. And then when you come to the seventh chapter, all the way through the 10th chapter, you have the second half. And so the Ezra that you uh, read about, and I think Ezra wrote the book of Ezra, though uh, his authorship is not defined within the book itself, but Jews historically have always ascribed uh, authorship to Ezra. And I think there's good internal evidence within the book of Ezra to show that because of the first person pronoun that he uses, especially in the second half of the book. But in the first six chapters, he is describing what happened in earlier years. And when you come to the seventh chapter, he's describing what happened during his lifetime as a priest. 
And so between chapters 6 and 7, there's a 58-year gap, and that's where the book of Esther comes in. And so Esther is written and takes place between chapters 6 and 7. So when you read of these names in the early part of Ezra, Ezra was not functioning at that point. Um, I think there's good evidence to show he wasn't even alive at that point. And so there are a number of names that are rather common names, and it's very important uh, you ask who they are. The, the Nehemiah, for instance, here in Ezra was not the Nehemiah who returned to Jerusalem 90 years later in 444 B.C. It's different. Nor is the Mordecai here, Esther's cousin, who lives in Susa about 60 years after the Jews return. So remember, there are three deportations. God had said through his prophets like Jeremiah that because of their disobedience, the southern kingdom, Judah, named after the larger of the two tribes, would be carried away into captivity. Indeed, they are. And and they're carried away in three different deportations. We've been studying the book of Daniel. First one happens in 606 B.C., when Daniel and his friends are taking place, the big one in 597 and the rest in 586. There's also equally three returns. Zerubbabel in 538, Ezra, I think it was 457, then Nehemiah, I can always remember that, 444, 444 B.C. So Ezra writes his book around 457 B.C. And so the events that are described here in chapter 2 of Ezra happen, you know, a hundred years before that, a little over a hundred years before that. So um, the, the Nehemiah that's mentioned here, the Mordecai, they're just different Nehemiahs and Mordecais. And there are many times in Scripture, like there's a guy who's, who's mentioned here, Jeshua, or uh, it's um, in a parallel text where the same list is given, it's rendered Joshua, very common name. And so you find there are some names just like there are certain names in English today that are very common. So it was amongst the Jewish people. There are some names that you'll see over and over and over again. And if you don't look carefully at the context, so I I know what you did. You thought, oh, Ezra, uh, Mordecai, uh, same time frame. Well, not the first half of the book of Ezra, different time frame, entirely different. So Ezra divides into two halves, but the Ezra that you know about who ministers during the time frame of Nehemiah, um, he writes the whole book. He's recording earlier history in one through six. He's writing about the day he lived in and the final half of the book beginning in chapter seven. Good question. All right. Very good. Our next question comes to us from Anonymous in Florida. Anonymous writes, in light of the most likely presidential candidates from the Democratic and Republican parties, how do we as Christians approach our civic duty to vote with what we have to choose from? Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, I'm definitely praying for the election year and will be doing my civic duty to vote uh, this coming November. However, I am very apprehensive. I don't want to dishonor God by putting my name on a candidate who I feel is not the best person for this office. I also understand that God uses the just and the unjust to accomplish his will. After all, he is sovereign. I would appreciate your thoughts on this matter. Well, you know, unfortunately, a lot of Christians aren't registered to vote. And many who are registered don't vote. Uh, If... um, uh, if some of the major evangelical organizations that track these are statistics are correct, uh, they say only about 50% of born again Christians are registered to vote. And then uh, only in a presidential election, 
uh, do about half of those 50% who are registered even vote in, in a non-presidential election, that's about cut in half again. And that's the national average. In some places, it might be 5 or 10%. Other places, it's a little bit higher. So unfortunately, well, I think what's happened is that many of God's people have been silent and apathetic. And so they don't even vote. Look, I'm going to vote in November. I'm going to vote no matter what. And there, I'll be voting not just, of course, for the president, but a number of other offices. And, and I'm sure there'll be some issues uh, on the ballot, uh, constitutional issues for South Carolina that usually show up during that time frame. And I want to vote intelligent. I don't want to just show up in the booth and say, oh, what's this all about? I usually do some research in advance and try to find out what the ballot is going to look like and what the issues are. Now, obviously, for the office of president, it's kind of a sticky situation. If someone's born again, has a regenerate mind, they have great difficulty voting for Hillary Clinton. Why? Well, number one, she's in favor of the LGBT lifestyle. She believes that it's a civil rights issue like our current president and vice president and many in our Congress. 43 Republicans last Wednesday sided with the president, basically affirming the idea that there should be transgender people who can go into any kind of bathroom they want to, that there's even such a thing as transgender people. Well, it's true in the sense that uh, it is a form of sin, but it's not right, and it's certainly not a civil rights issue. And it's really a shame that we have people who think this way, that this is good thinking. And of course, Hillary Clinton believes that this is a civil rights issue. It's not. It's a moral issue. And if you don't believe that, then you might want to go to last Sunday's sermon. It's either at YouTube, type in God and the LGBT movement, or go to search the scriptures or communitybiblechurch.us and listen to it because I go through Every passage in the Old and New Testament that deals with the LGBT lifestyle, every single one, I didn't miss one. Now, it's not a sermon for the faint of heart. It's an hour and I think eight minutes or so, but it will answer your questions and it will give you the ability to respond in an intelligent fashion. You know, it's one thing to say Jesus is God. It's another thing to quote a text of scripture that teaches that he's God. It's one thing to say, well, I am against the homosexual lifestyle. It is another thing to take them to a text of scripture because the word of God is alive and it has a piercing effect that your own words do not. And not to mention, a lot of Christians don't even know what the scripture speaks on this issue. So they think, well, maybe there are transgender people. Well, God doesn't measure your sex, your biology between your ears, the way you feel, but to use a Hebristic statement between your feet or some translate it between your legs. And someone wrote me and they said, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard. And that it was the most vulgar statement I ever made. Well, I can't help their biblical ignorance. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. God uses a number of euphemisms. I don't quote body parts here on the air or, or in the pulpit. Never have, never will. I'd rather use the euphemisms that God uses. Her feet were uncovered or whatever it might be. So um, when we come to this issue for Hillary, obviously I'm not in favor of her view on the LGBT movement, nor am I in favor of her view of life. 
She has a wicked view of life. Uh, She was in favor and still is in favor of a woman's right to an abortion. It was her husband who three times had the opportunity to stop partial birth abortion, but did not. Uh, Very, very sad. Very, very sad that he would veto a bill like that. Fortunately, it was eventually overrid because we had enough people with some moral strength. But to think about having a baby delivered feet first, all but the head, and then to have the brains removed and the skull crushed and the dead baby put on a table. I mean, that's just sick. That's that that's murder beyond murder and painful for that little child. And yet um, that's where the Clintons have come from. And I might add that's where Donald Trump has come from. He was at one point in favor of even partial birth abortion. You've heard the interview. Most of us have with Tim Russett back in the 90s. He said he he believed it was not only a woman's right to an abortion, but a woman's right to partial birth abortion. Now, look, I know people can change. We have people in our own church who held that position at one time. Then they got saved and God gave them a new regenerate mind. The illustration I used was um, if I lived in Nazi Germany when my government was in favor of exterminating the Jewish people and I said nothing or voted in favor of that kind of expression and then I got saved, I can tell you my heart would be broken uh, because uh, uh, a regenerated heart is a broken heart over sin. I don't see any brokenness over Donald Trump. Maybe he has changed. Maybe he's politically changed so that he can get the nomination. So let's just assume for the sake of argument, there's two people on the ballot. There might be a third. Some think they'll present an independent candidate as we've seen here in the last couple of days. Um, Maybe there will be a third, but let's just for the sake of argument, say there's two. Well, you have the opportunity to vote for Hillary or Trump. To vote for Hillary is to vote for something and someone whom you know is outwardly evil in their positions that they take. No question. Well, to vote for Trump, some would argue, well, he's changed. I hope he has. Um, Remember, there's a lot of things that are at stake here, and it's not just the presidency. It's the judicial branch of our government. It's the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, We've got some guys in the 80s, and we've got some guys who want to retire, but they won't unless maybe they have the right person on there. And now some things have unfolded. And look, the the Fourth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals last week said that it was legal and should be obeyed for a transgender person to go into any bathroom. So now we have a precedent case. Now that could be challenged and it could go to the Supreme Court, but understand only about 1% of all the cases in the circuit courts ever make it to the Supreme Court. Maybe this issue will. But if the Supreme Court has people sitting on it who are evil in their way of they thought, and look, let's face it, five out of the nine justices voted in favor of gay marriage in the United States. All five who voted in favor of it, they knew what God's word says. These aren't stupid people. They knew specifically what the Bible says on this issue. But they raised their puny little fist in the face of God Almighty, and they said, we are going to adopt what the Bible says to be wrong as legal. 
That's wickedness. And if you have some more wicked people on there who um, believe the same way, then I'm telling you the implications for the church are huge. I mentioned our own governor who said, well, I'm not going to deal with this issue because I don't see any religious freedom being expressed. That's the Obama way of thinking of religious freedom. The Obama administration talks about religious freedom, and they mean within the four walls of your, your, your church. And just keep it there. But don't take it out into the community. Now now it's a, a civil rights issue. And we are going to be dealing with this issue in South Carolina beginning this fall. Look, grammar schools, middle schools, high schools, universities, uh, their federal funding is going to be dependent on whether or not they acquiesce to these federal mandates. And if these federal mandates via a Supreme Court that acts like the, uh, um, the the Congress of the United States where they're legislating from the bench, if this becomes really a law, then the implications are huge. It's huge on you as a Christian. It's, you know, if you, if you for instance, are opposed to uh, a transgender person coming into your bathroom and you work for some major corporation like IBM or Home Depot or Walmart, and you speak out against it, I can get, tell you, you're going to lose your job. So there's going to be all kinds of implications you know, for Christians who, and even non-Christians who have some moral fiber left in them, that the implications are huge. So you can vote for Trump. And some would argue that that would be the lesser of two evils, or you can vote for Hillary, which would be definitely an expression of evil, or you just vote your own conscience. And that's ultimately what you have to do. Hey, look, let's just say, and I would not chide anyone who says, I can't vote for Donald Trump. I think he's a phony. I think he's a fake and I can't vote for him. Well, some would say not to vote for him or to write someone in or to vote for one of these other smaller parties that don't stand any kind of a chance. Or even if there's an independent person who's presented as a third alternative, which would probably uh, eliminate Donald Trump, uh, some would say that that would be a bad decision. It's never wrong to vote your own conscience. Let's just say you can't vote for Donald Trump or Hillary and Hillary gets elected. You did what was right. You voted your conscience. And that's ultimately what you have to do. You have to seek the living God and say, God, what should I do? And let's just say for the sake of argument, Hillary gets in and she appoints some wicked liberal Supreme Court justices and the church in America gets persecuted. That might not necessarily be a bad thing. That might be a good thing. It might wake up the church in America and it could bring revival or it might just bring in the return of the Messiah from heaven. Uh, So these are important issues. These are important days. I think someone's waiting. Let's go there. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Um, um, Hi, Pastor Brody. Hi, Rick. My question is I'm reading um, Matthew 20 and it tells about the parable of the workers and uh, pay equally. Yes. Um, Jesus was going on about each hour, usually the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. And at the end of it, he said that those who started first were paid last, and those who were started late were paid first, and the first people were grumbling. My question is, um, can you please give me a clear understanding of that, because I'm a little confused? Yeah, this is, uh, this is an interesting 
parable, and you could argue it as a parable on rewards as well as a, a, patitu- an, a, a parable on the right attitude that a servant is to have who's yielded to his master's will. And of course, Jesus is likening the kingdom of heaven to a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. And he agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, the first group, and he sent him to the vineyard. And he went out about the third hour. And again, this is where it's helpful if you're not familiar with some of those terms um, in the scripture when it mentions the third hour. If you have the New American Standard Bible, you'll see a little number one before third hour, and it will take you out into the margin and it will tell you noon. And uh, and he saw others standing in at 9 a.m. and he saw others standing and hired them at noon and the third group at 3 p.m. So he hires these third groups and these three groups of people. And they at the end of the day, um, he calls them together. And when those who he hired at the 11th hour, the final group, um, had received a denarius and the group before that, a denarius, the group before that, a denarius, they all received the same pay. And some thought that this was unjust. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? He said that to the folks who were hired at the beginning of the day. At, and yeah, that that's what we agreed upon. Well, didn't I pay you what you, yeah, you paid. Well, then it's my right if I, if I want to hire somebody at the 11th hour, at the end of the day, and pay them the same wage that I, you agreed upon for me to pay you for the whole day, which was a good wage. It was a fair wage. And then he can do as he chooses. Take what is yours. Go your way. But if I wish to give this last the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? Thus, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And by the way, this is a reminder to me of how God in his perfect justice and generosity will award people. There there are some people who live in a country of the world, say, where the gospel is so prevalent, uh, they can hear about the Lord Jesus early on in life. And as a child, maybe as a teenager, or even a young adult, they find Jesus Christ as their savior. And you can have someone else who maybe through the missionary work of some agency brings the gospel to their community for the first time. And they're 50 years old and they hear the gospel for the first time. So you have one who serves faithfully from the age of 12 to the end of their life. And the assumption here is that each of these do what they've been asked to do. They're serving faithfully. And the other Uh, comes late in life and also serves faithfully, God can give them the same reward. God doesn't like shortchange them. He looks at what you had been given and how you used what you've been given. To whom much is given, much is expected. Of course, he's dealing here as much as anything with an envious eye where a person maybe doesn't have the right kind of spirit uh, towards a, a fellow brother in the Lord. So, so God is the rewarder and we should allow our hearts to be filled with him, not the reward itself. And they, they didn't have the best perspective and, and we are to live not for the reward. We, we live for the Lord God and in this perfect equity at the end, he will reward us accordingly. I remember I led a guy to Christ at the age, he was 66 years old and he had been faithfully 
attending a church that didn't have the gospel his entire life. And by a divine um, quirk, so to speak, but there are no quirks or accidents in the kingdom of God. Everything happens by God's sovereignty. Someone brought him to an event in our church. He came back the next week and filled out a visitor's card and went to his home and his wife's home. And he received Christ at the age of 66. And he served faithfully until he was 74 when the Lord took him home. But I remember him telling me when I was teaching this passage, and by the way, we have a three-week session in our discovery class dealing with laying up eternal rewards. And we deal with this very text among some others that deal with the subject of biblical reward. Now, I remember because I was teaching the class back then in the 90s, And he said, boy, this is like good news to me. I I got in late, but God says I can have the same reward if I'm faithful. And I said, that's right. So keep your eye on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And the one before we will someday stand and give an account for our faithfulness to him. Okay, a couple minutes left. Let's see if we can do this. Uh, What should a husband do if he feels his wife is no longer in love with him, not affectionate, somewhat distant? It's a long-term marriage with both being Christians, no third person involved. Do you think Christian counseling might help? I think it might. And I think um, you need to do some very uh, careful soul searching because the problem, the heart of the problem is usually a problem of the heart. And while you can't deal with your wife, you can certainly deal with yourself. And more than likely, there are issues in your life as the head of the home as the one who's called to love your wife unconditionally and sacrificially uh, that has created this problem. Most of the time, it's the guy, the head of the home, who would create this kind of atmosphere, either through misdirected leadership, so you set your wife up for problems that she shouldn't be uh, experiencing, uh, or any number of issues. So yeah, you need to sit before a born-again pastor or a Christian counselor that does what we would call neuthetic counseling, uh, Nuthao is the Greek word to encourage or to exhort, who's going to open the scriptures and say, this is what God says. So there's a lot of counseling out there. Will they do personality uh, evaluations and all this nonsense. And um, look, if, if that was needed uh, to be effective in counseling, then the scriptures are not sufficient, but they are sufficient. And so you need to go and get some good biblical counseling because your marriage is on the edge. And it could be dissolved in a year or two if it stays this course, because someone else is going to come along who's going to pay your wife attention. And she could easily be opened up to temptation and your marriage could dissolve. So get help. Get help soon. And I'm assuming you're in a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church, in which case you should call the pastor or one of the pastors and set up an appointment immediately, even if you're the only one to go. You can start with yourself. Well, we're out of time for today. We didn't get to all the questions, but we covered those that the Lord wanted us to cover. Hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. 